I would be remiss if I did not say that the sacrifice and the effort and the time that the choir and the orchestra put in week after week is part of what sets the tone in this church for what we do and who we are and how people perceive us. And their gifts and use of their talents and their time and their willingness to make things a priority like the kingdom and give hours and hours and hours of time to that is one of the things that makes a difference in the life of this church. And I'm grateful to them because I know that they're never going to get up and be unprepared. I know that they're always going to get up and do their best. And I know that the spirit of these folks who sit behind me week after week is that they want to honor Christ. And they are far more interested in you being impressed with the Jesus that they sing about than you being impressed with them. And I am grateful for those kind of people, and I'm grateful for what they do in the life of this church. Before we turn to Acts chapter 4, you may want to hold your place there. I want to ask you to turn to Psalms 137. <clears throat> and I want to ask you three questions. Questions that have haunted me, broken me, arrested my attention since the end of November of last year. Questions that I cannot let go of. Questions that will not let go of me. Questions that remind me of what I am to be about. Someone has said that my interest is in the future because I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. And although I am grateful for all that we have done in the past, we must move on to the future in the life of this church. In light of that, I want to read three verses of Scripture out of Psalm 137 and then ask you three questions that I hope will haunt you and burden you and arrest you to the point where you are sensitive to what God might say to you through these verses. Psalm 137 and verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. The first question is this, What do you weep about? It is a question of burden. What do you weep about? A question of what breaks your heart, what burdens you. We sat down and wept. People weep about soap operas and who dies on their favorite soap opera, and people weep about all the things that are going on. But I want to ask you, what breaks your heart when God is concerned? Do you ever weep? over the thought that there are some people that you see week in and week out that once were faithful members of this church and somehow or other their priorities have gotten out of balance. They may used to teach. They may have been deacons. They may have been actively involved. And somehow they just decided to check out. Do you ever weep about that? Do you ever just sit down and does your heart ever get broken about the people who are missing what we take for granted so often? The second question is, what do you dream about? It's a question of vision. What do you dream about? We remembered Zion. Now, you've got to remember, to those people in captivity, 
Zion was the best of everything they had ever had. It was all of God's promises. It was the promised land. It was the city set on a hill, Jerusalem. It was the temple. It was the presence of God. It was the Ark of the Covenant. It was all of God's blessings and promises wrapped up in the promises given through Moses. And they said, we remembered Zion. You know what they remembered? I think they remembered what they could have had if they had kept their eyes on God. What Zion could have been, not taken over by a foreign power, but Zion could have been a place where God dwelled and power was evident. What do you dream about? What's your vision? What do you want God to do? The third question is, what do you sing about? Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They were making a mockery of them, saying, all of your songs are so happy and festive and praising of God. Why don't you praise God now? What do you sing about? It's a question of joy. And in the answer to those questions, you will find your personal values, your objectives, and your goals. I've had to ask myself those questions. And I've had to reevaluate some of the areas of my life and am still doing it in light of the questions that I laid before you, that I have laid before myself. You see, God's got something He wants to do out there in the future, and I think He wants to use us to do it. And for us to do it, there are a couple of things that we have to let go of. We have to let go of yesterday's failures. I have a tendency in my life to keep trying to correct the mistakes that I made yesterday, or ten years ago, or five years ago, or a year ago, and trying to clean up after all those things, and I have a hard time applying what Paul said. When they brought up Paul's past to him... And he said, forgetting those things which are past, I press on toward the high calling of Jesus Christ. In 1954, there were two rookies that started with the Milwaukee Braves. Jim Greengrass went to bat four times as a rookie in his first game with the Milwaukee Braves, and he got four doubles. The other rookie never got to first base. The other rookie's name was... Henry Aaron. Which rookie do you remember? The one that failed his first time at bat. You see, you have to forget yesterday's failures. Nobody knows who Jim Greengrass is or where he is, but everybody knows who Hank Aaron is. Why? Because he didn't let the failures of one day dictate the direction of his life. The second thing you have to forget is yesterday's comfort zone. Yesterday's comfort zone. The, the time when we just kind of chill out, we never make impacts from our comfort zone. Thomas Edison said, show me a thoroughly satisfied man and I will show you a failure. I found a poem. It may be in your notes, I'm not sure. Disturb us, O oh Lord, is it in there? Follow that with me. Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too well satisfied with ourselves. When our dreams come true only because we have dreamed too little. When we arrive safely only because we sailed too close to the shore. When with the abundance of things we lose our thirst for more of God. When in loving time we have ceased to dream of eternity. When in our desire to build on this earth, 
we have lost our vision of a new heaven. Could I recommend to you that somehow you copy that or you paste that in the front of your Bible and that every now and then you go back to that and you ask yourself these three questions and then you read that poem to yourself and you ask God to disturb you. Don't ask God, don't ever let me get comfortable. Don't ever let me be satisfied. I'll never forget walking down the hall one day with Nelson Price when I was on staff at Roswell Street. And when he was in his mid-50s and he said, You know, I remember J.D. Gray, the great pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Orleans, Louisiana. He said, Nelson, I don't want my last years to be my worst years. I want them to be my best years. But you see, J.D. Gray tried to coast to retirement. And his last years were not his best years as pastor of that church. See, I want God to disturb me. I want Him to disturb me at 41. I want Him to disturb me at 51. I want Him to disturb me at 61. I want Him to keep disturbing me at 71 or 81 or however long He gives me. I want God to disturb me. I want Him to get my attention. Can you imagine what would have happened if the disciples had decided to go back to their comfort zone and go back to fishing after the ascension like they did after the death of Christ? If they'd said, well, you know, he told us to go back and wait and the Spirit would come, but, you know, fishing's a big business and it's a profitable season and we ought to be going there. And Can you imagine if they'd just left the Mount of Ascension and gone their way? We would have never known about Pentecost. We would have never had the book of Acts and known about what God can do in churches and in, church, in a church in particular in Jerusalem when God's people wait and get a hold of God and are obedient to Him. Could I suggest to you that there are two days you don't need to worry about? One of those days is yesterday with its mistakes and cares, its faults and blunders, its aches and pains. Yesterday has passed forever beyond our control. All the money in the world can't bring it back and we can't undo a single act we performed. We cannot erase a single word. Yesterday is gone. The other day that you can't do anything about is tomorrow with all its possible burdens, its large promise, and poor performance. Tomorrow is beyond our immediate control. Tomorrow's sun will rise, but until it does, we have no stake in tomorrow, for it is yet unborn. This leaves only one day, and that is today. Any man can fight the battle of just one day. It is only when you and I have the burdens of those two awful eternities, yesterday and tomorrow, that we break down. It is not the experience of today that drives men mad. It is the remorse or bitterness of something which happened yesterday or the dread of what tomorrow will bring. Therefore, we must seize the day that God has given us. Let me take you to Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 and talk to you first of all about the attitudes of the church. Now, there's a lot of scripture here and so I'm going to give you the ability to study a lot of this on your own, and I'm not going to read a lot of it to you, but to try to give you a sense of direction of what the early church did. The first attitude that they had was a prayer attitude. In our philosophy, everything begins at the pitcher's mound. It begins with prayer ministry. Prayer enacts everything we do. That means that God initiates ministry as we are on our knees before Him, he initiates in our heart the kind of ministry that we need to be involved in. In verses 23 through 31, we find the attitude of prayer mentioned. In verses 23 and 24, it was instinctive. 
It was just an instinctive part of them. It says they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. The second characteristic of their prayer is found in verse 24, and that is that it was submissive. In verse 24, when they admitted that God was the Creator, they admitted that He was sovereign, and they were submitted to the sovereign will of God. The third characteristic is that it was authoritative. In verse 25, "...who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage, and do the people devise futile things?" You see, it was authoritative because they acknowledged the power of the Holy Spirit in their history, in their background, their heritage, and in their lives. In verses 27 and 28, if you'll find two little phrases at the end of verse 28, to do whatever thy hand, that's the first one, and thy purpose, that's the second one, predestined to occur. The fourth characteristic of their prayer attitude was it was insightful. It was insightful. Thy hand and thy purpose. They knew they were not up to human business. They knew that they were not up to just some kind of physical organization, that it was a supernatural organism that they were a part of. And it was God's hand and God's purpose that was imperative in their praying. Number five, it was imperative. Verse 29 and 30, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. It was imperative. Their prayer led them to know that they could not be silent about their faith. They could not stand still. In their praying, they began to ask God to get them off their knees and to go to work in the world to reach a world for Christ. And then lastly, it was effective. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. I don't know about you, but I want us to have a prayer meeting one day when the place gets shaken. And I'm not talking about a bunch of 18-wheelers driving by. I'm talking about God's Holy Spirit comes down and shakes us. And we are so filled that we speak the Word of God with boldness and without apology. That's the prayer attitude. The second attitude that was important was the share attitude. And we're not talking about Sonny's wife. You musicians, y'all caught that, didn't you? Share, S-H-A-R-E, the share attitude in verses 32 through 37. Verse 32 says they were of one heart and one soul. They shared, first of all, a common burden. They were of one heart and one soul. You see, that means that if you're playing first base and you're a caregiver, it means that you care about what the people at home plate are doing that are doing reaching. It means that you care about what the teachers are doing, about what the trainers are doing. Why? Because it's a common burden. It's not, hey, this is my ministry, this is my gift. We're over here doing our thing. Y'all all leave us alone. It's not separate plates spinning out there out of control. It's one plate. It's one game. And it's a common burden and a common soul. Secondly, they shared common goals. Verse 32, the last part of that verse. They began to combine their resources and pull their resources together to meet the needs of other people. Thirdly, they shared a common power. 
The first part of verse 33 says, With great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection. And then fourthly, they shared a common grace. Verse 33 in the last part says, Abundant grace was upon them all. A common burden, a common goal, a common power, and a common grace. The share attitude. Could I give you just a little note to write down? The door of opportunity is always marked push. You go through the door of opportunity by pushing, never by pulling. You push it open and keep on going. The prayer attitude, the share attitude, the dare attitude. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. You're familiar with the story about Ananias and Sapphira. They dared, first of all, to confront issues. If a church is going to be what God wants it to be, then the church must be willing to deal with sin and with lying and with deception. This church was willing to deal with Ananias and Sapphira, obviously prominent people in the life of this church, but they weren't putting everything on the table, and they were trying to hide behind something, and they dared to confront issues. Secondly, they dared to be controversial. Verses 12 through 16. The city was talking about them. Power was on them, and the city was taking notice of them. They dared to be controversial. Do you know that sometimes we are a controversial church? Sometimes I do things that are controversial. I hope when I do them, I do them in the right spirit and with the right attitude. Sometimes I don't always do it that way, but I hope I do for the most part. I want to do it that way. But you see, if a church is going to make a difference, it's got to be controversial because we are running cross-culture. We are opposed to the culture in which we live. And so when we take a stand on certain things, it's because we're supposed to take a stand on those things. And it shouldn't have to be pounded from the pulpit. It ought to be permanent in the pews that when issues come up that are anti the gospel and anti the cause of Christ, that we don't have to be exhorted to do it. We just do it. We get out and take the stand that we need to take in the community because we know what God's will is and what God's Word says. And there are some things that are real clear, and those things are clear to the point of being controversial. By the way, I read the Oklahoma State paper, and do you realize that in Oklahoma they defeated the lottery by 64% vote? They defeated the lottery in Oklahoma. You know what? All the papers in Oklahoma are blaming it on the Baptist. <laughs> Bless God, we'll take that badge as a badge of honor. We have to be controversial. Number three, they dared to preach with boldness. Now you understand the lottery is illegal unless it's enough to pay for the next building program and then we may think about it. But <clears throat> I'm just kidding, all right? Somebody walked out to get something walking at home and said, that preacher at first, that easy. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go your way. Stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. They dared to preach with boldness. Now, can you just get that picture? (laughs) You get thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. What do we do? Put a for sale sign in our yard and go to the next town. Hide. 
The angel of the Lord said, look, I'm going to let you out of jail on one condition. <laughs> now you've got to go back out and stand in the street that they arrested you in a few hours ago, and you've got to say the same thing you said before. That's boldness. You're going to get in trouble for doing the things that God tells you to do. The world is not going to understand, but we're called to preach the Word of God with boldness. Number four, they dared to obey God in verses 28 and 29. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intent on bring, to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. And then finally, they dared to speak the truth. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. That is the message, you know. That is the truth. It's not joining a church. It's not being baptized. It's not being commissioned. It's not being sprinkled. It's not any of those things. It is when we realize that the message, the truth of what we preach is Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended, and coming again. That's daring to preach the truth. And the church that will uncompromisingly do that and dare to stand on the authority of God's Word is the church that God will bless. Churches can go through all the motions and say, oh, we believe in missions and we believe in evangelism and we believe in the gospel. But when we do that, it makes us speak the truth, it makes us be controversial, and it makes us have boldness. Now, there are some activities of the church. Some activities of the church. In the ministry of proclamation, if you look at verses 20 and verses 30 and 31, they took the initiative to teach the truth. They taught the truth about life. They taught the truth about the Lord. Now, they were willing to take the consequences of their faithfulness. The activities is, is that they got involved in the ministry of proclamation. Now, in verses 15 and 16, you see not only did they teach the truth, but they applied the truth. They broke out of their holy huddles and they began to apply what God had told them. Verses 15 and 16, they were meeting physical needs. In verse, chapter 6 and verse 1, in ministering to the widows and orphans, they were meeting emotional needs. There was hurt, there was emptiness, there was longing, there was loneliness in the lives of those people. When they began to break the walls down and minister to the Hellenistic Jews and to others, they were willing to bridge racial and cultural barriers. I wonder, could God find us in the activity of meeting needs and breaking down barriers? Of doing something so significant that we do in fact resemble the body of Christ? Not known so much for the fact that we are Baptist or Southern Baptist or Sherwood, but known for the fact that when people come within these walls, that they sense in us that we have the spirit of the body of Christ. I would much rather be known as the body of Christ than to be identified by any other term or any other way. If we do that, then we are functioning as God intends us to function. Dio Moody said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And that which I can do, by the grace of God, I will do. I'm sure you've seen this study, and if you've been in any kind of education classes or anything, you know 
some of these facts, but I want to give them to you because I want to talk about the difference that one person can make for a moment. In the activities of the church, it all begins with one person or a handful of people. Tozer said when God begins to send revival to a church, it always happens with a minority of people, and one of two things happens when that comes. Either the majority will put out the minority, or the minority will be so on fire for God that the fire spreads among the majority. Now, we have over 650 people who have signed commitment cards today to say that they will go to work for God. Now, you just multiply that out into the dozens and dozens of ministries that that represents. But I'm going to tell you what would happen if just one did it. By one vote, King Charles I was beheaded. The vote was 88 to 87. By one vote, France changed from a monarchy to a republic by the vote of 353 to 352. The early American Revolution was a time when there was a vote to abolish English as the official language of America and make it German. It was defeated by one vote. Just think, none of us know how to talk right now. (laughs) I wonder if they have Southern German. Donker shame. In 1845, one vote allowed Texas into the Union. The man who cast the deciding vote to allow Texas into the Union won his Senate seat by one vote. By one vote, Andrew Johnson escaped impeachment. By one vote, Rutherford B. Hayes won the Electoral College vote, 185 to 184. By one vote, on November 8, 1923, Adolf Hitler was elected to lead the Nazi Party. And by one vote, President Clinton's budget passed this year. You see, one person does make a big difference. But think of what 650 people are going to do for the cause of Christ. One multiplied times 650. I think we're going to make a difference. I think we're going to take this city. I think we're going to shake this city. I think we're going to do something that this town's not ready for. And I think God's ready for us to do it. Finally, the achievements of the church. First of all, they fulfilled the Great Commission. When a church gets a vision and a burden, they begin to fulfill the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority is given me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, and behold, I am with you always. How do we do it? We do it in the authority of Jesus. We do what he tells us to do, and then we know that when we do it, he is with us. Secondly, they filled the city with the gospel. Chapter 5 and verse 16 says, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together. They filled the city with the gospel. You know, we have people that drive here from Sylvester and from Dawson and from Leesburg and from all over. When this church was established and when this church was a mission, There was a little small community around here, and like every other church that's ever established, it was established to minister to this neighborhood, way out on the edge of Albany. And now by the year 2000, the center of traffic and the center of this community will be located at the traffic light just before you get to the mall. Did God not strategically place us some 40 years ago? And our mission property which is located six miles from here, where an estimated 60 to 90,000 new people will live in the next 15 years. 
Did not God not give us land where nobody thought anything would be? And our upper campus, where two weeks ago on the news they announced a new subdivision with 150 new homes, just a rock's throw from our upper campus. Did God not know what he was doing when he has placed us all over this town to fill this city with the gospel? I tell you what I want. I want every time anybody moves in this town, they can't get away from the name Sherwood. Because when they hear the name Sherwood, they know that behind it stands the authority and power of Jesus Christ. I want to see that happen. I want to fill this town with the gospel. Thirdly, they furnished everyone with an opportunity to hear the gospel. It wasn't closed. It wasn't limited. They shared it with everybody from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They were coming together. Every week, we furnish people with the opportunity to hear the gospel through television, through visitation, through our mail-outs, through all sorts of ways. People have an opportunity to hear the gospel. When ladies come to the Crisis Pregnancy Center, when people walk through the doors of our school, wherever they find themselves, we try to give opportunities to hear the gospel. Why? Because we believe we're not just here for ourselves. We're here for those who have yet to come. This building wasn't built just so we could be comfortable. It was built for those who were yet to come. And other things will be done along the path that God has put us on that are for those who are yet to come. They will be realized by our grandchildren and our children as they grow up. We'll establish a heritage in this place that our children can be proud of and they'll want to be a part of. And they'll want to come back and invest their lives here. Not because opportunities in other places won't be greater. Or because the fast life of the city won't be more appealing. But something will be planted inside of our kids that makes them want to come here and be a part of something supernatural. I believe God wants to do that here. Someone has done a survey. They did it of 100 people. And they said out of the average 100 people, 23 do not know what they want. Sixty-seven believe they know what they want, but they don't know how to get it. Ten of those hundred know what they want, and they know how to get it. But out of that ten, eight are unwilling to pay the price to get it, so only two reach their goal. Two out of every hundred. Thirty-eight thousand Southern Baptist churches, most of them are meeting tonight all across this country in nearly 50 states. Nine thousand of that 38,000 won't baptize anybody this year. We are in the one percent of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. The average size of a church in the Southern Baptist Convention is about a hundred in Sunday school. Most of them have bivocational pastors. In fact, 62 percent of the pastors in Alabama are bivocational. We are a phenomena among Southern Baptists. That is not anything for us to glory in. That's not anything for us to take pride in. But it means that we have a great, great, great responsibility to take advantage of the opportunities that God has given us. I cannot tell you how many times that I have talked to pastors and talked to people who have been amazed at the opportunities that God has given us. I cannot tell you how many times men have said, 
You never need to go anywhere for the rest of your life. You got all that you could ever do in your life right there at Sherwood. And you know what? I know that. And I also know that most of my peers either don't know what they want, they know but they don't want to pay the price, or they don't know how to get it. But I want to be counted by God as one of those two that is willing to pay the price. If we can pull together, and if we can make things happen by the Spirit of God empowering us and compelling us, and driving us, if you will, and putting within our hearts a passion. And we are going to make a difference for the kingdom of God in this place. I believe it with all my heart. I don't have any doubts about it. That's not preacher talk. That's not pulpit filler. That's what I believe to be the gospel truth. You see, a lot of churches will never have a chance to do what we do because they fight all the time. One of the things that I'm grateful for that is in the almost five years now that I've pastored this church, we're not known as a fighting church. In fact, there are a lot of people that have come to this church because they're tired of being a part of fighting churches. They come here beaten up and battered and broken, and they just are tired and worn out and weary. Sometimes they come to sit and hide for a while because they're beaten up so bad. But you see, God is somehow and His plan has brought us together where there's a sweet spirit when we have deacons meeting. There's a sweet spirit when we have church. There's a sweet spirit when we have business meetings. There's a sweet spirit when we discuss the budget. I mean, we've been behind the eight ball a few times. And there's never been a sense of panic. There's never been a sense of anger. Why? Because I think God has protected this church because God knows that He wants to do something in this place that's very unique. And it's our responsibility to get on the page where God is so that we can go when He goes, stop when He stops, move when He moves, and say what He says and do it with boldness. And if you want to give you an idea about the difference in churches, let me just close with this illustration. There are thoroughbreds and there are donkeys. When the enemy attacks a thoroughbred, the thoroughbreds will by instinct turn and face each other and look at each other and will kick out toward their enemy. When donkeys are attacked by their enemies, they will turn and face their enemies and kick each other. So here's the question. Do you want to hang around with thoroughbreds? Or do you want to hang around with a bunch of donkeys? i tell you who I spend time with. I spend time with thoroughbreds. Our staff, our deacons. In fact, you know, everybody I know in this church is a thoroughbred. Because I believe God has reached down and touched everybody in this church and said, I want you in that church for this time. I want you in that church for this time. I want you in that church in this time. You know why? Because everybody in this church is important to fulfilling this task. We cannot do it with just a portion of us. And what's going to happen is when the enemy comes and Satan comes and he begins to try to divide and he begins to try to build wedges between us and he begins to try to put a root of bitterness or something in our lives, 
then if we're thoroughbreds, we're going to turn and face each other and say, we're in this together, and we're going to kick the enemy until he leaves us alone. We won't be like those churches that turn and face the enemy and end up kicking themselves. We're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot. We're not going to kick ourselves. We're going to step up and step out and step to the plate. And to put it in baseball terminology, we're going to knock it out of the park. And we're not going to do it because we're any better than anybody else. We're going to do it for one reason. We will do it when we are obedient to God in everything that He tells us to do. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed, please?